faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. Well, hello, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. Today's episode is the first in an entire month of takeover from the Hill newspaper. So today's guests are the the hosts of the Hill TV Rising, and I'll let them tell us a little bit more about it. Let me start by saying Brianna Joy Gray uh, is a co-host of the Hill TV Live and host of her own podcast called the Bad Faith Podcast. So we'll hear more about that, along with Robbie Suave, who's a senior editor at Reason and also a host of Rising on Hill TV. Thank you guys for being with me. Thank you for having us. So I have to ask, we may as well um, just sort of jo- jump in. I um, This is only my second episode ever with two guests. So thank you for the juggle. Um, and bear with me as I figure it out. I know y'all are pros at this, but I'm just a kid just trying to figure this out. So um, Brianna, talk to me a little bit about your background and tell me a little bit about the podcast first, and then we'll get to the to the show that you guys do together. Sure. Um, I was a lawyer up until 2018 doing a general commercial litigation, like many people who identified as progressive or a leftist or what have you in 2016. There was a lot of excitement around Bernie Sanders' run and then a lot of disappointment around the DNC's seeming refusal to have a a fair contest. Uh, And in the lead up to the general election, I was so frustrated by the prevailing media narratives, the failure to acknowledge the existence of leftists of color. The Bernie bro narrative was going very strong at the time, a failure to acknowledge why it was that Donald Trump was so successful outside of um, his more controversial statements that were perceived as bigoted in various ways. Um, and it seemed to many of us that like the writing was on the wall, but there was none of this discourse happening. So I started a casual podcast with my best friend called Someone's Wrong on the Internet. Didn't expect it to really go anywhere. It was more of a psychological outlet for us. Um, and later I started writing ostensibly to bring some attention to the podcast, but the articles I was writing actually got more traction than the podcast itself. Ended up freelancing for about half a year before The Intercept reached out to me about coming on a senior politics editor. I did that for almost a year before the Bernie campaign reached out about me coming on as national press secretary. Mm-hmm. And then after the Bernie campaign ended, I was looking around for something to do. It was suggested that I start a podcast. And so Bad Faith Podcast was born. That's amazing. That's good. That's giving hope to those of us like myself with small podcasts in the world that there are <laughs> other outlets and cool ways to do this work. And Robbie, tell me a little bit about you. How did you get started? Sure. Uh, I've written for Reason Magazine. Uh, it's a libertarian publication of news and culture uh, for almost 10 years now, uh, primarily as a writer reporter. In the course of the work I was doing there, um, a lot about pop culture and about education and basically whatever they assigned me. Um, I started doing more appearances for cable news, um, for CNN sometimes, and then a lot for Fox News. And uh, in the course of doing a lot of appearances for Fox News, I got noticed um, by um, the former owner of The Hill, Jimmy Finkelstein, at a time where, so, so The Hill is a, is a news publication with a website, uh, print publication, and then has a, a television show that was released on YouTube that used to be hosted by um, Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty. 
uh, a, a news show in the cable news tradition that's released on YouTube. Um, they departed and uh, from the show about two years ago now. Mm-hmm. And I auditioned to take over one of the slots at Jimmy Finkelstein's invitation. Um, and we've had a kind of rotating cast for a while. It was me and two other people. And it was me and one other person. And then it was me and three people. And it, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a really fun, chaotic uh, couple of years, but uh, now most of the time it's me and Brianna over here um, hosting a kind of right versus left debate, discussion, interviews with uh, guests on the news of the day and kind of some, you know, pet topics of ours with COVID for me, um, the, the left for Brianna. And uh, that's what we do. The left. The left. More broad, well, economic <laughs> issues. Uh, well, and, and part of the theme of our show is, you know, the areas where we can find, where we do find consensus and overlap and frustration with the two-party system and how we feel like it doesn't really represent um, either of our political traditions very well. Mm-hmm. I think that that's awesome. And why should the, be, the news at the Hill be any less messy than the rest of the news <laughs> everywhere else. So you're riding the wave with all of us. Um, I've, I've told this story before, but I started the podcast myself because having once been an operative in the political space, found uh, myself, I've been in public affairs in Washington, D.C. for 25 years. And I hated what the pre- previous administration was doing to our friends like yourselves who are writers, who are in the business for uh, in, for good cause and for, for telling stories that were really sort of getting, you know, uh, you know, kneecapped, if not, if lack of a better way to do it. So I thought that it'd be cool to have conversations with my friends that I worked with on the Hill. Um, And that's kind of how this all started. But you guys are really, to me, you're at the Hill at a really exciting time. Because as you mentioned, Robbie, the the ownership has adjusted and changed over the course of the last couple of uh, months and years. And there's now a new infusion of activity and talent and content that you all are bringing to not just for the rising, but also just in general, there's so much going on. So talk to me about the regularity of the show and how it is. Is the daily show um, and people can daily find show. it on YouTube. They can find it on the Hill newspaper uh, website. Talk to me a yep. little bit about that. Yeah. YouTube is our primarily place. Our show is located, but yet you can find it at hill.com. We release on some streaming uh, sort of like Roku. Uh, we're on there. Um, and as a podcast. It's so. available as podcast too. Um, and the, yeah, the, the partnership with Nextstar and Nextstar uh, News Nation. Um, so we're partners of News Nation. Nextstar owns us now. It has been useful in terms of covering local news, I would say, mm-hmm. because sometimes we're sitting in the chair. So we, yeah, it's daily show. We're recording for like three hours a day. Oh my gosh. Um, we're just doing kind of segments that are like eight, 10, 12, 15 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes there'll be a breaking, I mean, a, sadly, a lot of times it's a shooting or a crime story mm-hmm. or something like that, but you know, of, of general interest and it's, and you can see that it's blowing up on social media. It's trending on YouTube. We want to talk to someone about it. And because, um, Nextstar has all these, um, you know, local affiliate partnerships, all those deals, um, we've been able to get some really terrific reporters on short notice to cover like, you know, crime or, or East Palestine. We covered a lot, mm-hmm. the train um, accident there right. uh, with some really great on the ground people. That's amazing. It's, I mean, that's so fun. And Brianna, I'm curious because this is your second career. Uh, Cause previously, as you said, you were an, you were an attorney yourself. So now you're in, Third. <laughs> but in the, but in that space for some time <laughs> um, and now, um, and now reporting the news. 
um, and really sort of have a unique and important perspective in that space. How do you see that play into the work that you do today? Yeah, I mean, I'm someone who has been very open about the extent to which my personal ideology has driven my professional choices. I do think that all journalists are human beings. We have a point of view and there is a kind of traditional perspective that says, well, I should keep that to myself and try to be perceived as um, impartial. I think that's fine. That's one way to do it. But I think increasingly as opinion news drives the news and as the as social media exposes our private thoughts more readily than in, you know, the Walter Cronkite days or what have yeah. you. The reality is that I think that most people trust more people. A lot of people, I think, trust us and like us because we're very open about what our ideological priors are. Right. And we're still willing to have an, an honest conversation about subjects, even if they don't necessarily flatter one view or another. So for me, I really was spurred to do something because I felt very passionately about left populism and the project that Bernie Sanders kind of pushed to the foreground back in 2016, and an energy that was also capitalized on by Donald Trump, who I think also understood that neoliberalism, some of the consequences of capitalism, exportation of jobs overseas in the 90s, the end of the halcyon years, post the Clinton era, left a lot of people feeling really disaffected and like the government wasn't working for them. Some people saw an outlet on the right, some people saw an outlet on the left, but it was a very anti-establishment energy that the media seemed to not really understand, perhaps unsurprisingly, because it was an establishment media. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you had the rising prominence of podcasts, YouTube shows, alternative media that really came together to meet the appetite of the public that up until that point, I think really was going unheard. And that really boosted both the Bernie campaign and the Trump campaign in really interesting ways. So for me, I think of it less as career shifts. Well, the, leaving the law definitely was a career shift. I never liked being a lawyer. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I did it to pay off my loans. Not, still a, not, a, not a unique point of view from many of right. my friends. I mean, I, don't, I, from I that world. don't trust lawyers who like it unless they're like public interest lawyers. Uh-huh. Um, but since then, you know, I, I went, I started freelancing because I was writing about things that I was deeply passionate about. I started podcasting because I wanted to say things that I think were broadly felt but not being said. I was so grateful that The Intercept gave me the opportunity to write and edit there to a bigger platform. And it was a real shock to me (laughs) when the Bernie campaign reached out and wanted me to come and work for a political campaign because I had never done that before. It was a very novel experience to me. And I learned a whole heck of a lot through that process. Um, So yeah, I think of it almost less as a career than an incredibly amazing opportunity to be paid to do what I probably would have been doing anyway, which is to talk about and try to advance the interests of left populism. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery 
and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. No, and it's and it's great, and I think it's more of an evolution. I mean, the way we start and the way we finish in our careers, it's a long journey, right? I mean, as much as we think about it, and we go from you know point A to point B. In between, there's a lots of different ways to go. So same question for both of you. Uh, Robbie, I'll come to you first because I know you're doing a lot for reason. Can you think of a story from your point of view that like really was one that you're especially proud of, something you reported for there that maybe even spills over? Because I have to imagine that the reporting you do in the writing space spills over into the commentary that you offer on The Rising as well. Oh, sure. I will write an article for reason. And then we do a, I do a monologue about it for the show is lots of double dipping. That's awesome. On. That's the best way to do it. Um, I, I think uh, what, I, what I'm happiest to have been involved in is corrections to uh, mainstream media. Um, it, there can be, you know, groupthink going on in, um, in more traditional media environments. That's uh, honestly, that's so great about the work that we do and what independent creators are doing all over YouTube and other other uh, available places is that you can break out of some orthodoxies. Obviously, I think the mainstream media gets a lot right, but I also think they get a lot wrong. And uh, uh, yeah, for reason, I've uh, I, w- I was pretty involved in the. Uh, the I mean, this is <laughs> the most famous story I've ever been a part of. Was uh, if you remember the the students in front of the Lincoln Memorial, the Covington Catholic kids incident uh, with the Native American man. And I was the first um, journalist to, I just got lucky because as I was going to weigh in on it, the like whole footage of the incident had just become available on social media. So I was one of the first people to say that there was actually more going on than if you just watched the initial 30 seconds, it looked you know, very, it looked like the kids were being very um, racially insensitive. And the, specifically one kid was you know staring down this person who'd gotten in his way. And then you see the broader context that, there was a lot more going on. It was much more complicated than initially presented. And I, that's probably a good, um, and that was by far the most popular article I've ever written. Wow. It was read like a million and a half times. Um, I did like 50 media hits in two days about it. No um, I was on Fox a bunch of times about it. Um, but uh, I, I'm proud of that one because uh, the, the, again, a group think can pervade uh, the media. And I think that's why people like tuning into us so much. As Brianna said, we clearly have perspectives. We're not the voice from nowhere at all, but mm-hmm. because we're sometimes we're in the same place, often we're in very different places, but there's something like balance. And we invite on guests who you might disagree with from a left perspective, but they're in a, the liberal side. And the same thing with me with the right. We try to cover all the areas of interest. And so you hear a lot of perspectives on issues and then you can decide. But if you're only hearing one perspective, not only is that not fair, it's boring. Yeah. I, we're not boring because you're hearing a lot of yeah. perspectives. Yeah. The best is when some more traditional liberal or conservative comes on because Robbie doesn't identify as a Republican. I don't identify as a Democrat. Right. Um, but somebody will come on and suddenly it's like Power Rangers yeah. reunited <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> against like the establishment yeah. voice that's come up to the show. And I think it's unexpected for the guest. Sometimes you yeah. get more frustrated with people on, on your yeah. side Democrat because you're, sure. they're making arguments that, that you think are not good. And same thing with my, like, I cringe like, Oh, I wouldn't have said it that way. Right. 
I love that though. I mean, but that's what we need. I mean, I really think that that's a big part of the dialogue. And as we evolve over time, that that's very much what I think we're, we're headed towards, right? There'll be less of the group think. There'll be more of sort of this conversation from various points of view. But it's cool that you guys don't necessarily identify with the black or the white uh, of the Republican and or the Democrat. Like you're allowing for a very wide range of conversation and discussion because look, not everybody lives in those two silos, right? Not everybody's in that sort of like, there is a lot of gray in between and there's a lot of space for us to talk and, and find commonality, which it sounds like you guys are too. So Brianna, same question as you think about sort of the coverage you did for The Intercept and perhaps even some of the work that you've done at The Hill and maybe even on the podcast, what do you look back on um, and feel especially proud of? So I will say I kind of left out one step of the story with that the first person who published me was a magazine called Current Affairs, which is an independent left magazine that I happened to go to law school with someone who had written for it before. And that was my in after being told no by a bunch of publications leading up to that. Mm -hmm. And my first two articles for that magazine went very viral. One was a critique of how identity politics had been weaponized to shield Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris and some other figures from some substantive criticism from leftists. Uh, and the other was about how cultural appropriation had jumped the shark in some ways. Uh, so I really do want to give big props to independent media for helping to launch careers in that way. But uh, similarly to what Robbie said, I think that sometimes doing having a corrective role when there's mass media groupthink are the moments that I've been most proud of. And a little incident that has become that is now known as force to vote and my role in both writing articles explaining that conflict and advancing the arguments that were being made by pro force to vote advocates i think is one of the things that i'm most proud of it's something that i've taken a lot of personal flack for uh, professional flack for um but it's a stand that really mattered just to elaborate briefly it is often the case many leftists believe that there is a problem when so many Americans, when you poll them, agree on what needs to be done. Whether it's 70% of Americans supporting Medicare for all, whether it's overwhelming majorities of Americans supporting a living wage with 60% of Republican Florida voting for a $15 minimum wage back in 2020, whether it's a billionaire tax, which I think 70 plus percent of Americans support and on and on and on. So the question then becomes, why is it that we can't get this, these things if there's so much consensus? Why is it that there's so much division when a majority of Americans, as you were saying a second ago, are in the gray area, do identify as independents, mm -hmm. partly because they are frustrated with the corruption of the two establishment um, corporate political parties. And from a, a left point of view, I see my role as largely calling out the ways the Democratic Party also plays a role in covering for its own inaction. So journalists... David Sirota describes this as kind of like a Harlem Globetrotters uh, situation where there's an, an enemy that's designed to be the enemy to foil the hero. So you have a good narrative arc while you're watching a fake basketball game. Mm. And that is the role that the Democratic and Republican parties sometimes play with each other. Force the vote was a moment in history where a very small number of progressives could have exposed um, some of the failures of the Democratic Party at large. It was a situation just like what we saw with Kevin McCarthy in January, where a small group of people up, uh, upheld his nomination for speaker. Two years earlier, the squad could have done the same thing for Nancy Pelosi and declined to do so. And it was a big mask off moment for many people on the left who up until that point thought that there was a path within the Democratic Party to fight for a lot of these substantive 
economic justice issues. Mm-hmm. And once they saw these squads unwillingness to fight in that moment, decided to pivot and look to other paths forward to advancing some of the interests of working class people in this country. And so there was a lot of pushback. It was a very dramatic moment. It's got a long tail on it. There's still people who are very, very mad about force the vote. Um, but I was proud to have been one of the people at the forefront of um, just, just explaining what was going on there and ad- advancing the push to withhold the vote uh, for Nancy Pelosi in exchange for some substantive concessions for the left. Well, what's that bumper sticker they say? Uh, well-behaved women rarely make history. <laughs> I mean, sometimes yeah, you got to well, speak your mind. And I think that that's the hardest fair. part in the space that you all are in and that I'm in and really all of Washington is in because we're in the friend-making business, right? We're trying to appeal to a wider audience. We're trying to get people to sort of come to our line of thinking and how we believe. Um, but the truth of it is, is that it's time that we start to call things for what they are, right? That's sort of, that's my own personal point of view Uh, on the R and the D and the in-between side. I feel like if we could have somebody that maybe would stand up and be a leader again, I would be starting to believe maybe in government again, but that's my political commentary. Um, So Robbie, I see you taking notes over there. What other thoughts are coming to your mind as we're talking about sort of the, the point of view from the libertarian space and sort of the reporting that you're doing? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, This is a unique, uh, both political moment in, I mean, the, the, like the two parties are still very, very strong. And mm-hmm. if you want to get anything done in Washington, there's frustratingly, I think for both of us, very little alternatives. Um, they're, right. I'm a supporter of the Libertarian Party, but it's a very, very, very tiny mm-hmm. third party with almost no representation um, in can government. I, can I pause um, you for one second? Yes. I actually, I, I want to pull that thread for just a second. It feels as if sure. it's shrinking to me. The Libertarian, the libertarian Party? Yes. Certainly. Do you feel it's, that uh, It's had a... Well, you know, what's happened is things have actually gotten more polarized over time. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's a, there's more of a desire. I mean, in, in some to some ways, the media can play into this, too. Like, are you you're with Trump or you're even within the Republican Party? There's now a civil war. You're with Trump or you're against him. You're you're you know, you're an R or you're a D. And, and the, some of those associations have become they become stronger in some context, even as like people feel a, like a sports team kind of, these are my people and I have to defend them. But then when you get down, like, what do you like about their policies? Do you agree with them? No, you actually think they're just as corrupt as the other people, if not more, but you, you feel this pressure to be one way or the other. And and you feel because people used to have um, people's views used to not fit as neatly on paper, at least I think into Republican or Democrat, and they, they still don't necessarily, but a lot of that is swept aside because there's just this, desire to to beat the other guys that again the media can play into that they mm-hmm. they there's a lot of catastrophizing about right if if trump becomes from from a from a mainstream media perspective if if trump becomes the nominee again america is over we must stop that at all costs even if that means papering over some unsavory things or things we don't like about our guy and i am that conservative media it's yes this is uh, socialism will come to america america is over unless uh, unless the democrats are defeated and then talk to us again in two years where we'll say that exact same thing independent of of the circumstance um, but again, it's an opportunity for independent media. And obviously the, the Hill is not independent media, but we're pretty independent in what we get to say on it. We're in fact, we're totally independent right. for the most part of what we get to say on it. And we're reaching an audience of people online that is younger and more interested in ideas. And, um, and we, you know, we, we know what they think a lot because obviously we can see the numbers on our videos. So we know <laughs> what, what, uh, yeah. what takes they like better yeah. than, than others, but, uh, it's an eclectic bunch. It does yeah. not fit neatly. 
it, it can't be sorted by it is some sometimes I think their uh, their social views are to my right, but their economic views are way to my left. So it's uh, it's wild. Yeah, that, that that is the thing. There are these like um, charts. What do you yeah. call this? Like a X Y axis chart, chart or whatever. Or yeah, that it's like um, the 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 commentary is that you know you, you, we obviously have socially liberal, ec- economically liberal, socially conservative, economically conservative. What's terrifying, terrifying to Democrats from a liberal perspective is the world of uh, left economics, right social stuff, which is kind of what Trump ran on. I would argue he didn't f- fulfill any of his economic populist policies, but he presented himself as someone who was going to be critical of NAFTA, critical of endless wars, wanting to bring the troops home, not wanting to do the military spending, tr- tr- critical of deindustrialization, all of those kinds of things. Um, and that is very much who the audience is. And the audience primarily is motivated by an anti-establishment sentiment. So whereas the mainstream news says RFK Jr. is a joke, we shouldn't have primaries, why would um, uh, Joe Biden lower himself to that? We have a lot of people who, if you read the comments, say, I'm a Donald Trump, and in lieu of Donald Trump, RFK Jr. voter. That that is that is the kind of thing I see over and over again. They like Donald Trump. They like RFK Jr. They they kind of like DeSantis. They don't like the Donald Trump and DeSantis are fighting. The audience doesn't like to have to make a choice there, but they like the energy that both RFK Jr. and they loved Bernie. And they loved Bernie. Absolutely. So that that is something that is not a trajectory that I think a lot of people in the mainstream media would admit exists. Right. Let alone grasp why it is. Right. Well, because um, you'd need a sociologist. There are people who are not being spoken for. <laughs> you'd need a sociologist or someone to sort of yeah. unpack all of that. But yeah. really, it's sort of to me, um, in, as a former political person, it strikes me that they're just looking for someone who's not a Washington person, someone, yes. to, someone to parachute in and fix what's broken. Uh, yes, and, that's, and so when you turn on the yeah. TV, we just talked about a segment with Mehdi Hassan where he was interviewing Marianne Williamson, who is also perceived as this anti-establishment candidate, who is an anti-establishment candidate. He kept asking her, well, why are you qualified to do this? You're not, you know, of Washington. And she says, I think rightly, and in line with what our audience thinks, that's exactly why I am qualified to do this. People want someone who was going to drain the swamp, not someone who was raised there. Right. And and that was a big part of the appeal for Barack Obama was that, you know, the Republicans yes. kept felt, feeling as if um, the way to blunt his uh, candidacy was to point out that he didn't have a lot of experience when, in fact, that's exactly what people loved about him as a candidate. Yes, and, and he in had fact, a short record that yeah. he didn't have to defend yeah. because there was very little on it. So. And there are thousands of people who voted Obama, Obama, Trump. Trump. Yes. And is, wouldn't it be interesting to try to understand them better? And then yeah. some, of, some of them are Obama, Obama, Bernie primary, right. Trump, Trump. general election. Right on. Yeah, no. And I believe it. Because um, I see it, I feel like I hear it from people I talk to about sort of outside of the Beltway, because obviously in the Beltway, we're in the group think we're all using the same talking points in some way or another. Thank goodness you're both not. Um, as we get towards the end of our conversation, um, tell me a little bit. What should folks look out for in the rising? What's coming up next? Can you preview? Is there an exciting summer coming other than the fact that maybe we're going to have a debt ceiling deal and we'll move on to the next big issue of the day? Anything we can preview or that you're looking forward to? Yeah, look, we can, I think we continue to cover and talk to people that, um, that are, there's clear interest in hearing from, but you don't hear from them enough in in mainstream media. And then also we're affiliated with the Hill. So we're, uh, you know, we're a political news show. We do talk to people, on Capitol Hill on a daily, you know, not a 
every single day basis, but uh, uh, because sometimes you're just hearing the same regurgitated talking points from political figures, right? right We're not going to waste our audience's time with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm going to be interviewing um, Senator Rand Paul tomorrow in the morning. Um, we've had uh, we've had we had a fascinating conversation with Marjorie Taylor Greene, and you actually yes. got to ask her substantive questions yeah. that sometimes she doesn't get asked because. People just want to dunk on her. Either she's on right-wing media where they're just celebrating her. Right. Or she's in, when she got like that 60 Minutes interview, and they're like, people tell me you're crazy. Right. Because I'm not crazy. Great interview. And regardless of whether you think she's a racist or any of those other kinds of things, my perspective as an interviewer is, well, I know what I think and everybody who agrees with me thinks. The question is whether or not she is living up to the expectation she set for herself and the, the if she's fulfilling what she's telling her supporters, she's going to fulfill for them. So if you're saying that you're a right populist and you're negotiating the debt ceiling, are you actually going to have military budget on the chopping block? Or are you just saying performatively, oh, I'm against the war in Ukraine, we can be spending this money domestically, when the reality is you're putting absolutely no pressure on Joe Biden and the administration to actually make cuts to the military when you have an opportunity to to prune the budget in that way? Or are you just going to say the poor people have to take a cut to their SNAP benefits or what have you? Yeah, and ultimately, so that's that- the kind of interview that I'm very proud of that we do on the show. We're looking forward to continuing to interview these insurgent um, left uh, Democratic candidates here. Uh, we've interviewed Marianne Williamson a lot on the show. We're looking to get RFK Jr. Uh, soon and ask a different kind of question than people are ordinarily going to ask. I think there is a much more robust conversation that happens on the Hill about the differences between candidates like Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump and what they have to offer, taking them seriously and understanding what their appeal is to the masses without it being completely just infused with snark and eye rolling about how they're terrible and they're fascist. Okay, think what you're going to think about that, but this is how people who aren't antagonistic to them are perceiving their appeal. And I think there's a clear eyedness to the analysis because we're not trying to convince, we're, we're talking to an audience that on some level we, we respect. We know what they're coming to the stage with and what uh, what they see in the candidates at play. And we're going to tell them how true or false the representation of those candidates are, not how, you know, t- how terrible they are in our personal view. Do you sure. know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I do. And I love that. I, I, I did see the piece about um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, about how she didn't come to Washington to be a performer. Um, or an entertainer, whatever, whatever the, I'm forgetting what the headline was, and you didn't write the headline anyway, so it doesn't matter. But, um, but it was interesting. I mean, I love that. And I love that you're sort of diving in and asking questions, hard questions, difficult questions, and providing points of view that perhaps other um, platforms are not. So I will make sure that in the show notes, that all of our folks know how to find you, because um, I know that they'll want to hear more and watch and tune in and hear what you guys are talking about as the lead up to 24 is fast and happening right in, before our eyes. Uh, I'll ask one final question of each of you before I let you go today. Thank you, by the way, for your time. Um, Robbie, who should I interview for a future episode for the podcast? Sure. I would recommend Batya Angar Sargon, who is a formerly has been a co-host of this show in the past, but she's a, she was actually deputy opinion editor for Newsweek. And I just saw the news on Twitter just before we started doing this, that she's now the the overall boss of the opinion section at Newsweek fascinating person who uh to a, a great degree fits into the uh the square of the political compass that Brianna was describing with uh, with sort of working class left economic views but uh speaking to a, a social views that are more to the right a combination that again is very confusing to people in Washington but yeah. absolutely exists out there in the world absolutely awesome and Brianna 
Um, there's a lot of good options, but I guess I'll go with uh, Pascal Robert. He has a podcast called This Is Revolution Podcast. He's one of the favorite, my favorite guests to interview on bad faith. And he offers, I think, a much more substantive analysis of a kind of left black populism that also gets broadly ignored um, by the media. Uh, there's a long left tradition in the United States among black people. When you the McCarthy era and the red targeting often targeted black communities, there's this uh, weird uh, allyship I'm having with MTG right now about some of the critique of the FBI precisely because the FBI has historically targeted so many um, black leftists, uh, killing uh, Fred Hampton, harassing um, and blackmailing MLK. Uh, just last summer, arresting uh, and holding some members of the African Socialist People's Party, alleging that they are in cahoots with Russia, which has become a refrain um, in some parts of American politics. So I, I always love talking to Pascal Robert. He's a real um, intellectual, and I learn a lot from talking to him. I love that. Those are both dynamite recommendations, and I can't wish you guys enough well and and good uh thank you so much for being the first two in the in the monthly takeover of the friday reporter podcast robbie suave and brianna joy gray from the rising on hill tv thank you both so much again thank you thank you so much and there you have it another episode of the friday reporter podcast in partnership with pr daily and coming soon to a platform near you on big wig podcasts see you next week